Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Hellraiser Podcast. I'm Peter and with me is Phil. Hello. Hi there. And today we're going to be talking about Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Part 2. From 1988. Now, just before we begin, I will say that there will be spoilers in this podcast. We're going to be talking about the whole film from beginning to end. So let's get cracking. Okay, so first of all, a little bit of backstory to the making of the film. There was talk of doing a sequel even before the first film was released, so they did know that they were onto a good thing and wanted to carry it on. Um, But at the time, Clive Barker was too busy to get involved properly to write and direct it, so they had to get some other people on board. And the writer they got is a guy called Peter Atkins, who was a friend of Clive Barker's and was in the theatre company that he was in with Doug Bradley when they were before they started making films. So he was brought on board to write it. And looking for a director, they turned to an American guy called Tony Randall, who was actually sent over by New World Pictures when they were making the first film to help finish it and got on really well with Clive Barker. So he asked him to step in and direct it. Right. So let's talk about the film. Yeah, it's a crazy film. It is quite a crazy film. Yeah, they they realised that the first one was quite small in terms of scale and scope, and so they wanted to really open up the world of Hellraiser and give the fans much more of the myth behind it and open up the world a lot more. So they certainly did that. They went for it in quite a big way, really, didn't they? They did go for it in a big way, and not necessarily in a good way. (laughs) No, they did add quite a lot, and at some points in the film you think, there's just a little bit too much going on. Yeah, there's too many, for me, in my personal opinion, there's too many disjointed sort of scenes of back and forth. Of, I mean, the film at the beginning, I really like the beginning of the film. I like mm. how it opens with um, Doug Bradley's character, Elliot Spencer. Who isn't mentioned by name in this film, but yeah, that's a really strong opening. It opens with this guy in 1920s, he's in India, he's in... He's in the army. Yeah, he's in he's our army clothes and he's got this box and he's going to open the box and you just think... <gasps> yeah. So when we see this character on the screen, we have no idea who he is. We've gone back in time and we're like, what's going on here? And also we're thinking, don't open that box. Yeah, absolutely. And then we see him taken to hell and obviously he becomes Pinhead. Yeah. And you see Pinhead going through all this torture and stuff. And this is right at the beginning of the film. You see him getting the nails driven into his head. And so when I initially watched this film, I was thinking, yeah, this is going to be great. So straight away it says this is going to be a different film. It's going to go into different ideas, i.e. the Cenobites were human and now they're not. And also it's going to be about Pinhead. (laughs) Yeah. It's implying. Yeah, and and it it isn't. And And that's the problem, I think, with it. I just have to say at this point that I still like this film overall. I I I definitely think it is a good film, but it is very sort of disjointed and um, goes back and forth around the houses and there's so many things going on. Whose loyalties are where and who is the bad guy in it or, you know, it's a strange film. There's quite a few villains. So let's start at the beginning. After you've got that little scene with Pinhead being born, as it were, um, who, by the way, is called Pinhead in this film. He's in the credits as Pinhead. Then we go back to literally hours after the first film finished, back to Kirsty in a psychiatric hospital, juxtaposed with the police searching the house, the family house, and they find the mattress that Julia died on and take it away. And Kirsty's not terribly impressed by this, and she's saying, got to get rid of that mattress because Julia died on it, and now she can come back. And at this point, no one believes her. They all think she's a nutbag. Yeah, yeah. Apart from the main doctor of this place, Dr. Chenard, 
who it turns out has quite an interest in the occult. And he's been collecting clippings and everything about the box and Cenobites and strange things for years and years and years. Yeah, that I think is excellent. Mm. This is all the stuff that I was really loving in this film. I love it when they go around his office and yeah. he's got the boxes there. He's got the, the pictures weird from weird... drawings on the wall. Yeah, esoteric books and stuff like that. That is fascinating. Yeah, and a photograph of uh, of Elliot Spencer. Elliot the... Spencer, yeah. And he is played very well, I think, by um, Kenneth Cranham. I think he's really good in this he film. He is, he's brilliant, yeah. He's got an amazing way of just looking blankly but with so much kind of intense emotion <laughs> yeah. behind his face. It's really weird. But he plays the the typical kind of insane asylum owner, doctor, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, the, yeah, the asylum is called the Chenard Institute, so it is definitely his place. And he's certainly in charge. Um, so he decides he's going to try and bring Julia back through this mattress, which he does in one of the most disturbing scenes of the whole franchise. I think this is the the most difficult to watch scene in the whole, in every Hellraiser film. It's horrendous. So for those of you who haven't seen the film, he gets one of his psychiatric patients who is hallucinating he's covered with maggots and worms, and he puts him on the mattress and gives him a razor and says, you know, there you go, get rid of them. And he starts to cut himself up, trying to get these maggots and worms off. And the, the makeup's brilliant <laughs> it is and it's amazing it's disgusting because it's really good it's horrible because it's the the image of this straight razor going over you know yeah. your collarbones and your skin and you see the blood flowing down and it's again played absolutely amazingly that character by oliver smith yes that's right the guy who played skinless frank frank the monster in the first film so now we see his face you see his face and then we see him cut himself up yeah <laughs> He's great. He's really great. And this scene is is absolutely horrendous. It's a bit much. I mean, it's it's a bit it's much. It's a bit for much. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, out pops Julia from the mattress, skinless, dripping like Frank was in the first one. Yes, but uh, the key difference here, not to nitpick too much, is that she is pretty much fully finished. She's kind of got her muscle and her bone and yeah, her veins. Fine, yeah. And... I was a bit like, oh, that's a bit of a departure from the first one. But you think it's because... Yeah, we, we find out later that she she says she was allowed to come back and she was sent back by something that we'll get to later on in the podcast when we're talking about it later. But yeah, she is more, much more fully formed and Chenard wraps her in bandages and gives her a dress and she says all we need now is skin. So she just needs to have some skin on and then she'll be fully formed again from the sound of things. Yeah, and this is, again, amazing visuals here because his house is all white yeah. and she's covered in blood mm. and he gives her a white suit to wear, which looks amazing. And there's and a bloody handprint left on the wall. Yeah, and it all looks fantastic, this. And it's so weird. And this is some of the images in this bit are so disturbing and strange. They're excellent. You know? And this does feel like a bigger version of the first film. It feels like an extension of the claustrophobic nature of the first film, but just in a bigger setting. Yeah, absolutely. And um, a very heavy Bride of Frankenstein vibe going oh, on as well, well with I the bandages and stuff. If you listen to the commentaries, then Peter Atkins and Tony Randall both say that Bride of Frankenstein is one of their favourite films. And so there's an obvious influence from that film, definitely. And just speaking of claustrophobic nightmares for a moment, let's just mention in the Chenard Institute... 
down in the basement. Oh, well, yeah. in fact, the the level underneath the basement, there's this horrific collection of cells where his his most disturbed patients are. And this is where he gets the character Browning, his name is, who is hallucinating all the maggots and the worms. But this is just really horrible. And you see glimpses into these cells of these disturbed, sick people that he's just basically keeping down there like animals. Yeah, it's it's this is brilliant. This is one of my favorite yeah, bits of the whole excellent. film because you go. He's in his suit. He's saying good morning, good morning. He goes yeah. downstairs, and then it's just like hell. There's <laughs> dripping pipes. There's smoke and steam. There's yeah. weird shadows. There's m- weird people who scream at you, and it's fantastic. It's the it classic is. horrific asylum. And at this point in the film, as a watcher, I'm still going. Oh, yeah, this is good. This is good, yeah. Meanwhile, in the hospital, Kirsty is visited by a skinless figure of a man, who she assumes is her father, who writes on the wall in blood, I am in hell, help me. And so she now, for the rest of the film, is focused on going back into hell and finding her dad. And this is the crux of the title, Hellbound. She wants to go into hell to try and find her dad. She's got a lot of balls. She has got a lot of balls, much more than any of the male characters she's teamed up with in the first film and this one. This Kyle, the the doctor character she teams up with in this one, is just is as useless as Steve was in the first film. He is. I mean, I would say he was bordering on dangerously stupid. <laughs> yeah, basically, Kyle finds out that Chenard has brought Julia back, so he tells Kirsty, and they both break into Chenard's house, and Kyle comes across Julia and doesn't seem to be phased, and then she drinks his energy to finish herself off yeah even though he knows that a skinless woman has come out of a mattress and is potentially in the house just because she has skin on he's completely fooled by her and uh (laughs) murdered by her and i think deservedly so i'm afraid carl i'm sorry yeah sorry mate sorry about that you had to go this isn't for your eyes it's for your ears so while we're here let's talk about the difference between Julia's resurrection and Frank's resurrection in the first film in the first one it was definitely a case of Frank had to put more flesh on his bones as he said and had to get blood to do this and then once he was fully formed but without a skin he had to get someone else's skin to wear whereas in this film the difference here is Julia can magically grow skin on her own body just by shoving her fingers into someone's neck and eating their energy yeah, I think here it's a little bit kind of strange because she comes out, she's got flesh and bones and muscle, and then off camera she basically eats quite a lot of women because they're all hung up yeah, in quite the a few, attic. Yeah, that have been drained. Yeah, um, but that doesn't really do anything to her outside appearance, which I would say was a budgetary thing. I think they probably <laughs> ran out of money. Maybe they didn't have enough time to do lots of different versions of her costume, of her makeup. That's my that's my opinion. It might be wrong. There's quite a few moments in the film that I think suffer from budgetary problems. And I'll just put in a little bit of behind-the-scenes information here. Just before they made the film, there was a stock market crash and 20% of their whole budget got cut. And you can kind of tell that in places. And it's a shame because there are some moments, big moments in the script that they just couldn't film. And so were cut. But we'll come to those a bit later on, some of those. Yeah, I mean, I I would just say that the special effects in the film are still brilliant. Oh, the yeah. The makeup is yeah. brilliant. 
you know the stuff of uh, Chenard operating on people's brains and stuff it's all it's all really good but you can tell that they're kind of the scope of some bits that had to be sort of reined in it was a very good choice of them to cut big moments and have really good special effects on the stuff they kept in rather than keeping in the big moments and skimping money on the special effects throughout yeah definitely because when julia first comes back and she's dripping and glistening that is just as good as frank in the first film it's amazing it's really really good and it's not her is it it's not the actress no it's uh, again it's someone who was thinner than claire higgins and could fit into this prosthetic suit so she was then the same size as claire higgins should be how could they be thinner than claire higgins (laughs) So she was a dancer, I think, apparently, the skinless Julia. But then that's an amazing makeup in itself because not only is it someone else, they've made the skinless Julia look like Claire Higgins. Yeah. Without any skin on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, fantastic stuff. Brilliant, brilliant. Some amazing images in that in that part of the film. Really Love good. It. So then this is where the film takes a huge tangent. Chenard has in his hospital this other young girl called Tiffany who never speaks and is really good at solving puzzles. So and he, who looks like Brad Pitt from Interview with a Vampire, the, in my opinion. She does a bit, yeah. <laughs> and he gets her to solve the puzzle box, which some would say is not a good idea. Yeah, he wants to know what happens after. Yeah. afterwards. He's heard about it and he's, as he says, it's what I've always wanted. And you think, eh? This what? is a bit weird. But he's just watching this as a voyeur from behind a door behind a mirror, a two-way mirror, with Julia, watching this girl solve the box, thinking, I'll see what happens to her, and then we'll move on. Yeah, and that could be the first clue that Julia was specifically sent back, because if she had just escaped, like Frank had, she wouldn't want to stand there waiting for the Cenobites to turn up. I've always thought that. There's no way. I always... When I first watched it i thought what's she doing there they're gonna come they're gonna find you but it does turn out later that she was uh, she was sent back but carrying on with this moment tiffany does solve the box the cenobites turn up all four of them the four main ones we met in the first film who in the credits are now pinhead chatterer butterball and the female cenobite still she's not given a name great yet, names but she's played <laughs> by a different actress in this film yeah which is weird because in the beginning of the film there's flashbacks from the first film and it's the old actress, and then it's the new one halfway through, and she looks different. <laughs> yeah, she does. Not not massively so. But no, it's, it's the same makeup, but it, you can tell you it's can, a different actress. You can actress. tell, yeah. So Chatterer, Butterball, and the female Cenobite turn up. They're just about to get Tiffany when Pinhead turns up in a huge reveal. It's really a case of, hey, everyone, look, here's Pinhead arriving. Check him out. And the music swells up, and it's just, it's a really good entrance. It's amazing. And he says, no, he tells him not to take Tiffany. He says, it is not hands that call us, it is desire. So he knows that it's actually Chenard who wanted the box opened. And Chenard then escapes with Julia into hell. So he thinks. So he but thinks. But she's actually leading him to the big open area where we finally meet for the first time what is in control of this hell. So let's talk about that now, because I've got to say, I'm not a huge fan of this. And what is it, Peter? (laughs) Well, the god of hell is called Leviathan. He's not a person or a creature. He's a huge diamond-shaped... Shape. (laughs) Yeah, basically, that emits black light that conjures up bad memories and images in your head if it touches you. 
it's quite explicit that this is the god of hell. Julia says, this is my god. And she refers to him as the god of flesh, hunger and desire. So is he the devil? Well, that's the thing. I mean, as it, again, they don't say anything about this being a Christian hell. So it's not the devil, but he is in charge of this hell. And he does control it. He is all powerful in this hell. And people do things because of him. It's him who made Pinhead. It's him who sent Julia back, we find out. Allowed her to go back. And then Chenard gets turned into a Cenobite. Yes, yes. He wanted Chenard. He wanted a soul. And Chenard is horrifically transformed in a kind of slightly funny sort of transformation into a Cenobite. I remember it horrified me when I first watched it. Yeah, there's there's certain moments in it that are a bit, a little bit odd. But this brings up for me the thing of this film, the contradictions in this film, because Leviathan wanted Chenard, he turned him into a Cenobite, yeah. and then later on there's a bit of a, a fight with Chenard and the, Ceno- the other Cenobites, mm-hmm. and they don't seem to be aware that Leviathan wanted Chenard. I don't know, there's, there's a lot of contradictions no, in the story as Leviathan it goes on from this point. To, yeah, Leviathan seems to make Chenard very powerful. Yeah. Was he was he doing spring cleaning? Did he had he had enough of the Cenobites? So. Yeah, yeah. But one thing I think is quite clear, and Peter Atkins, the writer, even talks about it, is when you are turned into a Cenobite, it enhances your qualities as a human. So when Pinhead was human, he stood still and talked very slowly. Well, yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> but also, he was a general, and so he became a leader. Yes. And Chenard is a control freak and a nasty piece of work. And so when he becomes a Cenobite, he becomes even worse. He becomes a nasty, evil Cenobite who just wants to control people and have his own way and hurt people. Yeah, and all of his powers revolve around knives and scalpels Mm -hmm. and things like that. Surgical things. Yeah, so what he did in life being a surgeon, a neurosurgeon. Yeah. The other thing to say about Chenard, the look of Chenard, it's a very striking look because he's got sort of cheese wire wrapped into his skin. He's blue. He has snakes that come out of his hands with surgical blades in them, which can seemingly transform into anything. He also has a very large tentacle attached to his head. He has a very large phallic tentacle that apparently is coming straight out of leviathan and is embedding itself into his head so he doesn't walk anywhere he he floats along on this tentacle yeah dangling from the tentacle which is certainly a very arresting image but kind (laughs) of odd it is quite odd yeah and as soon as he's taken away it's clear that julia is free to do whatever she wants she's you know the queen of hell at this point yeah leviathan is completely lets her have free reign, she can do what she likes. Which is interesting because in life, you know, she'd sort of killed some people and stuff like that, but it seems that she really blossoms in hell. And uh, <laughs> yeah, she really finds her calling. Hellraiser Podcast at hotmail.co.uk We have eternity to know your feedback. Well, here's an interesting question. Here's the thing. If you open the box... Who decides what happens to you? I guess it's this Leviathan. Because Elliot Spencer opens the box, he gets turned into 
Pinhead becomes a Cenobite and he has, is given powers and can do things. Whereas Frank Cotton opens the box, he's just dragged into hell and had horrible stuff happen to him. He's given no power. He isn't, and he's, you know, clearly a very evil man. And you get the feeling that most people who open the box just get tortured for eternity, or they have their pleasure and pain indivisible for eternity. Yeah, I think, and we talked about that in the last podcast, as in that is what's so interesting about these films. And Mm. in showing hell in this film, I think they sort of do themselves a bit of a disservice because hell in this film basically amounts to a lot of empty corridors. Some slightly strange kind of rooms of some sort of crazy imagery, but it's not what you want to see, you know, it's in my opinion. Yeah, it does look great though. It looks cool. These it, big long corridors. And yeah, no, they look great. Big matte paintings that are like an Escher drawing and it's very impressive to look at. Yeah, I think, I mean, it does look good, but for me it's it's very much a lot of back and forth through various empty corridors and rooms. Yeah, there's not a lot going on. And although Kirsty and Tiffany run into hell, trying to, she's off to find her dad, and they do come across a specific room which turns out not to be her dad. It turns out to be Frank's room. And her uncle Frank sent that message through the form of a skinless person to drag her to hell. He was enticing her there. Because, as we find out, his personal hell is naked women always promising but never giving up the goods. So he wants some physical gratification. And for some reason, he's decided to call for his sexy niece as you do yeah well i mean well she is lovely she is lovely if she was my niece then um anyway (laughs) (laughs) so she turns up and and she's still trying to find her dad and prior to this the cenobites have already said to her you can't find your dad he's in his own hell he's quite unreachable they say and then when she finds frank he says come on when you're dead you're fucking dead i think what they're implying here is that larry is nowhere to be found in this hell. He died of natural causes, and he's gone off to, if there's an afterlife, whatever that is. He's not in this hell. Yeah, that's what I took from it, because otherwise it's really frustrating, because it (laughs) makes the whole point of the film kind of meaningless. But it's horrible when she finds that out. She finds out she's gone through all of this. She's gone back into hell based on a lie. Yeah. Another bit of behind-the-scenes trivia here for you, film fans. It was supposed to be a case of her actually finding Larry. And apparently in the original draft, it was Larry and Frank were sharing the same body. And then they had a big fight and Larry ended up killing Frank, thus getting his revenge from the first film. But unfortunately, the actor Andrew Robinson, who played Larry in the first one, was unavailable for filming. And so they had to completely rewrite the whole third act of the film. And they just wrote in the fact that she couldn't get to him. And it was Frank all along. Yeah, and you can tell that. I think. You can a little. It is a shame that we didn't get to see empowered Larry, because that's what he would have been. He would have been a stronger version of Larry fighting and helping his daughter, and that would have been nice to see. Yeah, that would have been really cool. And I think you can tell in the film as it is now that it is a little bit strange, and you can kind of tell that their hand was a bit forced in terms of what happens in the film. I think so. But in lieu of Larry having his confrontation with Frank, we have a confrontation with Julia, and Frank. That's true. Yes. First of all, Kirsty manages to set fire to the room, thus shedding Frank of his skin for some reason. 
which uh, he doesn't like. Maybe that's why it happens, because he's Frank's very much, no, not my face. Yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't want to be skinned again, but he is. And then Julia turns up. And she means business. Yes, she does. She rips out his heart. She does. He He's completely confident that she's still in love with him and she'll do anything for him. And she's now queen of hell, so she rips his heart out. So that's another question. What happens to you if you're in hell and you get killed? <laughs> they don't go into details, they just leave leave him there. But I assume, well, they're implying that he is then just gone out of the picture. Mm, yeah, you don't know. Another little interesting thing about Frank here, you might n- notice if you watch the two films back to back that uh, Frank's voice sounds different. And this is because in this film, in the first one he was dubbed over by an American actor. And this one, we actually have the actor himself, Sean Chapman. It's his own voice. He's doing an American accent. I think he's an Irish guy. But he is doing his own voice in an American accent, which is great for him. It does jar a little if you are watching the two films back to back, which I don't think many people do, but I do. Yeah. And this does make a bit of a difference. Not a huge difference. It doesn't really matter because he's doing quite a good impression of the guy from the first film. Yeah, yeah. But you can tell. You can. It's not quite as jarring as the female Cenobite being a different person. No. So that's Frank. Done. Yep. Out of the picture. Gone. Um, this is where I, I feel it's, uh, it is difficult to sum up the plot of the film. Yeah, now it goes off on a couple of tangents. So at the moment we have Chenard as a Cenobite roaming around hell. We've got Julia as Queen of Hell roaming around. And we've also got Pinhead and his Cenobites roaming around. There's a lot of roaming. So Julia gets sucked into a big vortex, her skin comes off and she gets blown out (laughs) (laughs) into something or other, we're not quite sure what. With an amazing special effect. (laughs) With a strange little dummy. Yeah. But it's only shown very briefly. It's only a couple of seconds. It's fine. I'm sorry. And then we have the fight between Chenard and the Cenobites, which isn't much of a fight really. It isn't. And as the film goes on, I think there's a lot of scenes where everything's just a little bit eggy. It's just a little bit... There's a lot of reaction shots, a lot of people kind of moving a little bit and then something happening. I don't know how to describe it, but this fight certainly would show that. I do know that one reason for this is, again, a budgetary reason. There was originally written a big fight between the Cenobites and Dr. Chenard, but they they just didn't have the money to film it. Yeah. So in the end, Chenard managed to dispatch all four of them. Yes, he kills them all because he decides he's taking over their job, which is quite an interesting idea. I like that. Mm. And they do become their human forms. Yeah, right. Now, this is interesting because some people have a big problem with this scene because the Cenobites are so powerful in the first one and they're just sort of the heroes in some way for a lot of fans. Mm. And Chenard manages to dispatch them quite easily. But the argument against that argument is that just before this fight happens, Kirsty manages to convince Pinhead that he was once human. He, he remembers, and the other Cenobites remember as well, they were once human. And they are weakened by this memory and by these thoughts. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. I could agree with that. I think certainly the implication is that Chenard is a kind of super Cenobite in his yeah. abilities. And, and in a way that the old Cenobites are are just that they're old they they do their trick with the hooks and the chains and it has no effect on him whatsoever yeah so they are completely outclassed in this film unfortunately by chenard 
and a lot of a lot of fans, especially those who were really into Pinhead and want to see more of him, weren't happy with the fact that Pinhead ends up turning back into his human form. He's turned into him by Chenard, then has his throat slit in what is a very good little moment, really, special effects-wise. Yeah, it's excellent. It's very real. But that's him gone. That's him. That's it. Pinhead's dead. One of the most interesting bits about this, again, just a tiny little thing, but it's something that you go, ooh, I'd like to know more about that, is that you see all of the Cenobites as their human forms when they die. And the chattering Cenobite is a boy, a young boy. he's a little kid. And you think that makes your imagination just go crazy, thinking, what is the story behind that? How did he become the chattering Cenobite, this kid? The actor who plays Chatterer, Nicholas Vince, he has gone on record saying that he doesn't agree with this. (laughs) He's actually written a short story of his own going into the backstory of who Chatterer was. I think he says he was a, a stand-up comedian from the 1930s, I think. Really? Yeah. but so, And he's he wasn't impressed with the fact they made him a little boy in the end. Well, I think it's good, Nicholas Vince. <laughs> yeah, it's really disturbing because yeah. he's the he's been the ho- most horrible character you've seen. Absolutely. And we must mention here, of course, that the Chatterer now has eyes. Yeah, not in the beginning of the film. No. But the flashbacks. At, at the end of the film... He's got eyes. He's got eyes. Somewhere in the middle, he was given eyes. It's some backstory that was never explained in the film, but I do believe the story is Chatterer was given eyes. I think it might have been even by Butterball, if I'm remembering that correctly. I'm not sure if that's true. But the actual reason, the real reason, is that Nicholas Vince complained a bit about not being able to see, so they changed the makeup for him. I think that was the main reason it was changed i think so and i believe i heard a story that in the first film the hooks on the chains were swinging about and one of them actually went up into his mouth No, that's this film is that in this this film yeah at the end when he gets killed before he turns into a little kid he gets shot by one of chenard's snakes snakes and is thrown back against the pillar and when they filmed it he flung himself back and a chain swung round and the hook went into his mouth and embedded itself in his upper palate that's that's real Hellraiser. That's real Hellraiser. So, oh, um, poor guy. Yeah, poor guy. Bless him. But yes, I'm not a fan of him having eyes in this one, I'm afraid. I think it changes he looks, the look. He looks too different. He looks a bit like... He's sort of... He's like an alien or something. Like I don't pig. know. Yeah. Like a pig alien. <laughs> like one of those pig aliens you yeah, hear so much about. That you see. Yeah. In the street. He's not... No. Not liking that, I'm afraid. So we get these little glimpses of backstory. We know Pinhead from the beginning of the movie, where he was an army officer in the... 20s yeah very interesting and we see chatterer was a little boy Mm. but then the other two we just see that the female cenobite was a female person yes and the butterball was a big big guy big guy and that's all we get really Mm. but you want to know more you do want to know more Mm. and we do later on in the other films well the next film find out more about elliot spencer slash pinhead but you never find out anything more about the other characters no that's why we need Butterball and Co, the sitcom. <laughs> That's true. That that sitcom does go into detail. Yeah, great detail. <laughs> I love the episode where he gives Chatterer some eyes. That was a classic. That, yeah. that was the end of season two, I think. The one where Chatterer gets eyes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to talk about something else. Let's talk about, which we mentioned in the first one, this whole not knowing where the film is set, if it's England or America. In the first one, it was very ambiguous, as we mentioned in the first podcast. However, in this one... It's kind of less ambiguous because they are blatantly trying to say this is America now. Yes. Everyone is American apart from Chenard and Julia. You've got a 
policeman at the beginning saying he's from homicide. You've got policemen referred to as cops who are wearing American-style uniforms and have guns. And for those of you who live in different countries, these, these are things that would not happen in Britain. We wouldn't <laughs> no. have, police wouldn't have guns. Uh, they wouldn't be from homicide. But because the film was filmed in England, all the locations, again, do look quite England. Yes, in that they're grey and miserable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, the big Chenard house is... I'm sure there are big, lovely big houses like this in America, but um, it does seem like a big country estate in England. Yeah, it really does. It really does. But you were saying that they, they kind of just went for it this time. Well, yeah, in, in as much as none of the other characters are English. The Doctor is, and that could be fair enough, you know, he's this English guy that went over to America mm-hmm. and set up his own hospital. Julia is, because she was in the first one, so she has to be. Yep. But everyone else is American. Yeah, so we've shifted into America. Well, this weird quasi-America, or I think on the commentary, Peter Atkins describes it as the country of the imagination. Mm. So they are doing this on purpose now. In the first one, it was definitely a case of the company, they wanted to dub over some of the actors with American accents so they could sell the film to America. Whereas in this one, they've embraced that and they're going with it. They're, they're basically, they don't care at this point and they're just saying it's in a different alternative world. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. That's fine by me. I can deal with that. Which, incidentally, is the last time that this happens. All the other films from now on are all set in America. Except for one, but we'll get to that when we come to it. But n- none of the other films are set in this weird quasi-country of the imagination. The podcast. You downloaded it, we came. So a couple more little tiny things before we go and talk about. I want to mention the music again. This was, again, Christopher Young came back to do the music and is a great score once more. It's a huge, big orchestral score. It's even bigger than the first one. Mm. It's a lot more detailed and layered. And there's a new theme, the main theme from Hellbound, which has been ripped off a couple of times since. If you want proof of this, have a listen to the theme tune to the Puppet Master films. Oh, oh, that's that's alleged. alleged. Allegedly. But the music is, again, brilliant, really good. And it makes a huge difference to the film. And it was the last time that Christopher Young works on the Hellraiser films. They use his music again because the company owned the rights. So the music turns up again in later films. But it's the last time that he actually did any composing for the films. Hmm, shame. Yeah, it is a shame. And one other thing I want to mention is the flashbacks, the beginning of the film. The very opening shot of the whole film is Larry being torn apart at the end of Hellraiser. So you dive straight into the graphic imagery of the film. And then about 15, 20 minutes into the film, there's a quite a long description of what happened in the first film. Just for those who are coming into the film who haven't seen the first one, they can see, they can be told what happened in the first one because it is quite important for some of the things that happen later for you to get an idea of, of what has just happened if you haven't seen the film. But one very interesting thing about this flashback we have is there is footage in it that was actually filmed for the first film but eventually didn't make it in. It was cut, like shots of... Larry and Julia's wedding with Kirsty in the background looking very young and very young. Frank looking very odd. Very odd. Staring. Brooding. Brooding. Being a mm. nasty, starey man. Yeah. And some extra shots of Frank and Julia. In bed. Yep. In bed. Doing their business. Oh. And it's really interesting to see stuff that wasn't used that was going to be in the first one. Yeah, definitely. They certainly made it so that if you hadn't seen the first one, you would know what was going on in this one. Yeah. 
and it's very much a sequel to the first film. You've got one and two, they are they are together. Whereas from three onwards, they are separate films. Yes, absolutely. But an interesting thing about this very first opening flashback is they've changed the order that the Cenobites are dispatched to hell. They've got Pinhead being dispatched last, as if, you know, he's the big villain. He, he was the hardest to send back. And that's certainly trying to make it look like this is our big villain. Here we go. Yes, absolutely. I think in preparation for where they wanted to go with the franchise, maybe. So just to wrap up the end of the film now, Chenard does manage to get defeated eventually. Tiffany has this puzzle box that has been turned into the shape of Leviathan by the Cenobites, and she manages to solve it back into a puzzle box, at which point Leviathan actually turns into a giant puzzle box in the sky. Yep. And Chenard seems to lose his power as this is happening. His tentacles get stuck in the ground and then two thirds of his head gets ripped off by the huge phallic tentacle. Yeah, as deaths go, it's a bit disappointing, I've got to say. I like I like the, the head ripped off and the squirting. Oh no, I mean, the effect is brilliant. But I think for some character that's been set up so as so so powerful, I know that Leviathan's being sort of attacked at this point yeah. but the fact that he kind of accidentally sticks his knives into the floor and then goes oh oh and <laughs> rips his own head off is a little bit weird yeah it is a bit strange the other weird thing is the reason that tiffany manages to open the box is that chenard's being distracted by who he thinks is julia which turns out to be kirsty wearing julia's skin as a suit yes because julia when she was dispatched her skin came off all in one complete Yep. suit ripped at the back ripped at the back and then Kirsty is able to put it on and pretend to be julia which is fine yeah i'm i, I completely you know, go with that these things happen <laughs> we've all been there yeah so it ends happily for it ends Kirstie happily and tiffany and then there's a little coda moment so two removal men turn up at chenard's house one of them incidentally the actor from the first film who turned up at the beginning to bring the mattress in mm. And he's now come to take the same mattress away, but from a different house. Yeah. And he gets pulled into the mattress, half of him does anyway. Mm. The other removal man turns up, and this big column pillar comes out of the mattress. With lots of different faces and characters we've seen from the first two films in it. Yes. Some of them not terribly well done at this point, special effects-wise. But Pinhead's there. You can see his face. In agony. And then all of a sudden you've got the face of the tramp from the first film who says the immortal line, What is your pleasure, sir? And that's the end Mm. of the film. And we never find out what the removals man's pleasure is. No. (laughs) But one last little bit of behind-the-scenes trivia from the first draft. Originally, instead of the pillar coming out of the mattress, it was going to be Julia turns up out of the mattress, fully formed with skin on, wearing a black dress, and she was going to shoot black light out of her mouth that filled the screen, and that was the end of the film. The idea being that Julia was the focus of the films and was going to go into the next sequel. Oh. But the main reason they didn't do that is because Claire Higgins said she didn't want to do any more Hellraiser films. Oh, that's a shame. She didn't fancy being the female freddy krueger yeah i can understand that which is understandable because a lot of the fans were just all about pinhead (laughs) yes the filmmakers still hadn't quite got it yet that uh that's what people all that people wanted to see but i think down the line of the film they they, certainly did on the next one they certainly went as we will talk about on our next podcast indeed our next podcast will be all about hellraiser 3 hell on earth or pinhead 
as I like to call it. <laughs> it could well be just referred to as Pinhead. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's about it for this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Yeah, and basically to sum up our views on Hellraiser 2, Hellbound, Peter, what do you think? I really enjoy watching the second one. I think that it suffers a little bit from too much going on. I'm still not entirely convinced by the whole Leviathan thing. I think it's a bit strange to have this omnipotent being who's a big diamond shape in the sky. But I do like the fact that this hell is organised and has a ruler who tells people what to do. I like that very much. But I think the overall tone of the film is is great. And the first half especially, the brooding nastiness to it is really good. When it goes into hell, it becomes a different film, really, which is still great. But for me, I do prefer the first half where it's more real, set in the real world. It's more natural. But in general, I do enjoy watching this film and I can watch it over and over again. And I like it. Yeah, me too. I think it's a great film. Really love the beginning half of it. Some of the images in this film are amazing and weird and have stuck in my head for years and years and years. I think, again, I agree with you, Peter, that once it goes into hell, it turns into a different film and it gets a little bit confused. But hey, in this day and age where there's so many horror films that are so boring and bland, (laughs) a film like Hellraiser 2 stands head and shoulders above them. It's fantastic. It's weird. It's crazy. It's brilliant and it's certainly a cut above a lot of the other hellraiser films that are yet to sort of come down the line on our podcast yeah speaking of which our next podcast will be episode three we'll be talking about hellraiser three hell on earth so do please join us for that in the meantime we've had some great feedback from people already listeners yeah so keep those coming the email address is hellraiserpodcast at hotmail.co.uk It's really great to hear what you guys think. And if you agree with us or you disagree with us, then we really want to hear about that and just want to hear your thoughts and feelings about the films as well. Yes, please, please send anything in that you want to. We also have a Twitter account now. Um, Hellraiser Podcast was too long, it turns out, for a Twitter name. Ah. So our Twitter name is at HellraiserCast. At HellraiserCast. Yeah, HellraiserCast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we've only just started it, so there might not be... Many followers yet, but we're going to build up a huge army. And also we have a Facebook page, so do find that as well. Yeah. Great, so keep the feedback coming in. And if you want to subscribe on iTunes, that would be great. And leave us an iTunes review as well. That would be fantastic. Yep, any reviews you want to put on iTunes, please do. Please keep uh, listening and thank you all very much. Thank you very much. See you next time. Bye.